You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Freedom of Species. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. We are dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals. This includes animal advocacy, activism, protection, conservation and importantly appreciation. We are broadcasting from 3CR Studios in Melbourne, Australia. Live streaming and recent podcasts are available via the 3CR website. All podcasts are available from the Freedom of Species website and iTunes. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Emma Townsend. Hey y'all, this is Natalie from Blue King Brown and you're listening to 3CR. Support community radio and your local music scene. Subscribe now. Large parts of Australia were built on the backs of camels. If you get to see pictures of camel caravans carrying materials to build railways and townships up north, you wonder how the camel's legs aren't breaking from their seemingly impossibly laden heavy loads. A large bull camel was expected to carry 600 kilograms. One camel even carried a piano a vast distance into the outback so we could tickle the ivory out there. Today we discuss a paper recently published in GeoForum by Leah Gibbs, Jennifer Aitkinson and Ingrid McFarlane titled Camel Country, Assemblage, Belonging and Scale in Invasive Species Geographies. The paper raises many questions about the place of the camel labelled feral and invasive in Australia. When do we accept that a species belongs here? The camel thrives here in the wild, while there is a real concern about their declining population elsewhere. What does a hidden story of the camel have to tell us about our cultural development in regards to ethnicity and the white Australia policy? While many consider them a feral problem to eradicate, some are building up their herds for weed control. According to the renowned ecologist Dr Arian Wallach, and I quote here, Australia lost much of its megafauna during the Pleistocene period, which is the past 50,000 years. It is plausible that the camel is now assuming some of the missing ecological functions of these lost giants. When do we drop the feral label and accept, in the words of the paper, the establishment of a thoroughly Australian camel? I chatted with Dr Leah Gibbs from the Department of Geography and Sustainable Communities, Faculty of Social Sciences, University of Wollongong, Australia. (laughs) 
As a society, we love clarity. We like to compartmentalise, have pretty much everything black and white, black and white information, and to deal with problems as quickly and as swiftly as possible. Bear with me. We adore efficiency and we urge clarity in problem solving. And in the mainstream language, we hear native, alien, pest, feral, invasive. And when we hear these words, any compassion or further critical thinking is swiftly dismissed in our minds and the flora and fauna in question is wrong. It's a mistake. Can you tell us how we got here? How this wow. culture in the public discourse came about? I think that's a fantastic question and if I had the answer to it, I think we'd be in a great position. <laughs> um, so I, I think what you're saying is really true and interestingly, I think that it's a particularly Australian attitude so certainly these ideas of feral, invasive, native, pest, all those sorts of things, those terms and those ideas are in existence around the world. And indeed, some of those ideas, like invasive species, have in recent years or in the last decade or two become really important ideas in global debates about environmental management, about species management, about biodiversity. But I think in Australia there's a really particular attitude towards native and invasive species and native and feral species that's quite different to some other places. I think the, that kind of clear distinction that what we might call a binary between native and invasive, things that belong and things that don't belong, I think it's really pronounced in, in Australian society and in our culture and in our sort of attitudes towards the environment and I think that's actually tied up to a whole bunch of quite different and complex ideas. I think it exists in other places, but perhaps something about the islandness of Australia, something about also the newness of European settlement in Australia, non-Indigenous settlement in Australia, I think those all combine to sort of form this story that we have in Australia about species that belong and species that don't belong. How far... Is this entrenched in society? I'm referring to, I think, on uh, the page 57 of your uh, paper that was published in the Geo Forum. Mm -hmm. Feral species management is highly political, attracting significant resources in education and public education programs. Can you tell us a bit more about that? I think it's an interesting question. I think that debates around feral species are really deeply entrenched in Australia and that's partly influenced by international or global forums like the IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. So it's partly our management strategies and our attitudes around species partly comes from a kind of a, a top-down set of ideas, so ideas that come from global institutions and are then kind of filtered down into nations. But at the same time, there's also um, legislation around invasive species within Australia. So invasive species are mentioned in the EPBC Act, which is our kind of um, prime environmental act, Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act. That's a bit of a mouthful. So it's certainly within 
global forums and it's also within national legislation. But I also think that, you know, coming back to the comments that you were making at the beginning there in your introduction, I think that those ideas become sort of cultural norms and I think that's actually a really interesting thing to consider. So we've got legislation on the one hand but then we've also got how people think about species. You know, just around the campus here, for example, last year I noticed that there was a, a bunch of information sheets around about an eradication program for Indian minor birds. And I think often those kinds of things are not questioned. It's just, okay, that's a non-native species, so therefore it's acceptable that we remove it. So it kind of comes back to that cultural attitudes and that those points that you were raising at the beginning. It is a particularly strange point in time that we find ourselves in that respect when there's a re-evaluation of animal welfare in general mm-hmm. and we really are quite shocked and horrified by an increased awareness of what goes on with different mm-hmm. animal industries and whatsoever and yet we're so quick to get the rat sack out of the cupboard still, aren't mm-hmm. we? And all of that consciousness that people may be having about things, you know, it's suddenly turned off when it comes to this area. Tell us how this language and thinking impedes modern environmental management. Why we must move beyond this native alien dichotomy? Great question. I think there's a few different reasons. I think the main kind of simple answer is that it limits us. So if we're just thinking about native species are good, non-native species are bad, it limits our thinking and it limits what we can actually do. So in a lot of cases, just on a really simple practical level, in a lot of cases, eradicating those bad non-native species is simply not feasible. So we're kind of setting ourselves out for failure immediately. So that's just a simple practical point. Mm -hmm. But then there's also other really important environmental and socio-cultural issues that need to be taken into account. So I guess moving a little bit away from that kind of native good, non-native bad binary, we can get into discussions around impact and certainly thinking about environmental impacts of different species is gaining prominence and I think that it offers some hope. It gets us a little bit away from that simple binary but in the work that I've been doing with my colleagues Jenny Atchison who's also based in here at Wollongong and Ingrid McFarlane who's based in Adelaide, we're trying to suggest that even that work that's talking about environmental impact isn't going far enough. So we actually need to kind of think a a little bit more broadly and think a bit differently about the place of particular species in our landscapes, in our environments and in different sorts of environments. If we accept the fluidity of an environment and that nothing's native, nothing's a weed, we just need to manage it, what's the fixed in the management style. In your view, what should be fixed and what should be not fixed? If we get away from the language of native, alien, feral, mm. then what, what are we going to tether our psychology to? Does that make sense? What is the fixed response? I guess that, that comes from the appetite of wanting to be able to, you know, psychologically tether ourselves environmentally to things because we have that, you know, very fixed, clear, you belong, you don't belong, mm. you know, that let's put 
let's put animals on lists and and flora and fauna and you know trust that list and manage things accordingly what's the new structure what's the new approach if we throw that out the window I think it's a really excellent question and I suppose um, I don't have the answer to that I definitely don't have the answer to that and I don't think any of us individually have the answer to that yet but I think that what's really really important is that we don't become fixed that we don't become fixed in our ideas about what belongs, what doesn't belong, and the rationale for that. So the idea of native invasive or native feral or native non-native, there's a bunch of different words we could use there, those are quite deeply entrenched now in, as we talked about before, in policy and legislation, in international discourse, but also culturally. But we, we can do better than that. We need to be much more creative. We need to be recognising, changing environments locally and also globally. And we need to be open to thinking differently and thinking more creatively and taking on knowledge that we gain. You know, when we learn new things, we should always be willing to be humble and change our ideas and be willing to to revise or revisit our ideas about things. So rather than me saying, look, I've got the solution, because if I did, that would just be wonderful, I certainly don't. So rather than me saying I've got the solution, then I'm just sort of urging that we, we look at this and we find ways of looking at species dynamics differently, that we explore the different ways that we can understand species dynamics. You're changing the rationale, basically, behind it. In your paper titled Camel Country, Assemblage, Belonging and Scale in Invasive Species Geographies that you authored with Jennifer Atchison and Ingrid McFarlane, you chose the differential status of camels over time and space, in your words, to demonstrate the complexity of species management. Why the camel? Camels are great. (laughs) (laughs) They're pretty special. There's a few reasons, I suppose. The kind of not very scientific reason is just that we're all quite fascinated by camels. I've spent quite a bit of time in the desert, and so has Ingrid. Ingrid's father actually owned camels, so she has a real love of camels. We've both spent time in the Simpson Desert and so on. So there's a kind of a fascination with camels and with desert environments. I did my PhD in, in the desert. But then on a more, I suppose, on a more relevant level, I guess, I think camels are really interesting Um, at this time because there's been a very large-scale national plan of eradication or management of camels Mm. called the Feral Camel Action Plan and that has kind of taken place over the last five years or so. So this work, as well as kind of allowing us to sort of think about and write about camels and read about them and so on, which is really interesting and they're just such amazing creatures, as well as that it's actually also really relevant to current environmental debates that have, that have been going on. So mm-hmm. we've sort of been responding to, in part, that broader program of feral camel management. Which is and, culling, isn't it? Feral yeah. animal management is culling. Do they aerial cull as well? Yeah, okay. Yeah. So okay. That's, that's really important to think about. So the feral camel management strategies don't only involve culling. There's a whole bunch of different strategies around protection of sites that are being that are having damage and so on to them. But one of the parts of the feral camel action plan that's been really quite controversial and quite interesting and one of the focuses of this work that we've been doing has indeed been the culling. 
So in any sort of environmental management program, there's a whole, there's an enormous amount of effort that goes into working out what are the best strategies, what are the most effective strategies, what are the most cost-effective strategies for managing a particular issue. And so certainly there's been a lot of effort that's gone into working out how to go about managing the impact, the, the environmental and social impacts of camels. So I do want to kind of stress that we're not totally criticising this program on all fronts. There's a lot of very good work that's gone into it, but we do want to question what's being done, why, how, etc. So in the case of the camels, certainly what ended up happening is that the, the most cost-effective and most effective method was deemed to be aerial culling. And so that involves shooting animals, shooting individual animals from helicopters, basically. And because of the nature of the parts of the country that camels kind of hang out in, very, very remote areas in lots of instances, those dead bodies or dying bodies sometimes are left. So it's a technique that's sometimes referred to as shoot to waste. The bodies are not retrieved in any way. They're not used for meat or pet food or anything like that. They're simply left in the landscape. And that's actually been quite controversial in itself. And would that be the most common strategies just to leave the carcasses there? Certainly with camels in Australia it has been, yes. Okay. It's done in, a, in some other species as well um, and, it's, and it's mostly really connected to, as I mentioned, you know, the, ro- the remoteness of those areas. These are places that often don't have roads to them and just the logistics of collecting those bodies would be quite astounding, I suppose. In leaving the carcasses, I'm assuming you leave those carcasses for maybe maybe there's a, a wild dog issue that's also a hot topic at the moment. It, you're leaving carcasses there for other predators to get. Is that an issue in those areas? Or? Yeah, look, I think it might be. And, you know, admitting the limits of my expertise, I'm not a landscape ecologist. There are certainly some landscape ecologists who are working on these sorts of issues as well. So they would be able to speak in a much more informed way about the environmental implications of leaving carcasses. Yes. But I guess the, the, the sort of point that we really want to make in this work is that those implications need to be taken into account. So it's not enough to say we removed those animals. So often in culling programs, the term removal is used as though the, the destructive camel is somehow levitated out of the landscape is, is, is removed in every way but in fact what's removed is a live camel. So one of the small points, not the major point, but one of the points that we want to make is that, that, that there are implications of leaving dead and dying bodies in landscapes and some of those are connected to ethical questions around leaving a not dead body but a dying body in, a, in the landscape. Some of them are also around potential environmental implications around you know scavenging animals as you've suggested around leaving a niche so once you remove one animal from an area in certain species dynamics you actually just open a gap for another animal to move in and some of those kinds of things are really complex and are not necessarily perfectly well understood but they're not acknowledged, I guess, is that what you're saying? Look, I think, t- yeah. again, I don't want to oversimplify the great work that's being done in lots of different places, but I think that they're not acknowledged enough. So by using the term camel removal, it suggests that the whole problem is removed. Yes. But in fact, often one problem might be removed or partially solved, 
but then a whole suite of other problems and questions arise. So removal makes it sound like it's all fixed and we're trying to suggest that it's not fixed. There's a range of other kinds of issues that, that come up. And in some instances, some of those questions are pointed to, but we want to see those things given more air, I suppose. You are listening to 3CR 855am, Freedom of Species. We are speaking with Dr Leah Gibbs from the Department of Geography and Sustainable Communities, the Faculty of Social Sciences, University of Wollongong, Australia. We are discussing the rich mingling of Australian history, indeed the camel represents, and the connection the camel has to the development of the White Australia policy. What does the camel symbolise about an underbelly of cultural feeling towards ethnicity? Camels were introduced to Australian landscapes in the early to mid-1800s and it's estimated that about 6,000 camels were brought to Australia over several decades and they played a really, really important role in opening up the inland at a time when, you know, horses and bullocks simply weren't going to be able to survive in those landscapes. So they played this really, really important role. Now, there's a long history, a very interesting history around the changing role of camels in the Australian landscape. These animals were introduced into the Australian landscape and along with the camels, of course, came their handlers. So these were cameliers and they were referred to as a group. uh, They were collectively referred to as Afghan cameliers, but they actually came from a whole range of different areas across present-day Pakistan and Afghanistan. So quite diverse cultural groups. So the camels came with the cameliers to Australia. They played a huge role in opening up landscapes, in in exploration, in transporting goods. So once settlement had kind of happened in more remote areas, they were used in transporting railway lines, in transporting wool, ore, a whole bunch of So they they played a huge role in Australian history, as did their handlers, of course. Now, with the advent of the motor vehicle in the early 1900s, camels and their handlers were kind of in less demand. And so they became sort of not useful anymore. And all along, both the camels and their handlers were sort of received with some ambivalence. So people, the Australian government, Australian societies, the different colonies at that time really wanted the things that the camels and the cameliers could do but had a little bit of a sense of unease with this strange new animal and also a racial unease with the handlers connected to cultural difference and linguistic difference and so on. The quote there that the culture of camels was deemed at best exotic and colourful and at worst dangerous and dirty, that whole bizarre relationship, I'd love you to tell us more about it. Okay, so what... What's often sort of forgotten in the telling of this camel story is that that ambivalence towards camels and the cameliers was actually part of a broader anti-Asian sentiment. And that sentiment underpinned what we now refer to as the White Australia policy, which was formally called the Restriction of Immigration Act. And, I mean, amazingly, that act of 1901 was the first act that was passed by the new the newly federated government so it's quite it's quite sort of humbling in a way it's quite sort of i was very struck by the significance of that that 
the first act passed by our federal government was what became the White Australia Policy, the Restriction of Immigration Act. And so the kind of ambivalence around camels and cameleers is actually tied up with this quite sort of, gosh, how can I say, dubious set of attitudes around immigration in Australia at the turn of the last century. So it's a really interesting history. I think it's not told very much. I, mm. I really do. I really think that it's not told very much. And I think that these kinds of stories are actually relevant. I think that they're really informative. And they might not be, it might not be really obvious how it's directly relevant, but it's relevant to our understanding of this species and it's relevant to how did this species get to Australia? Why is it here? Why was it brought here? It wasn't brought accidentally. So I think, you know, it's important that we understand the broader context of a species being here because that just kind of helps us to understand um, changing attitudes towards species, changing attitudes towards a whole range of things. In this case, ethnicity, uh, immigration, and a whole bunch of really, really important contemporary concerns. So we had the Cameliers. They came, they were referred to as Afghans, but they were also Pakistan people. They didn't often speak English at all, and they would be uh, being called to prayer, so I, most of them were followers of Islam. The camel was such an essential resource that the Europeans wanted and needed to get to these areas, but there was never a collusion or a respect for the cameleer. Is that what, what you got when you were doing your research? To be honest, I have to say I don't know because I don't want to suggest that there was no respect for people. I don't think that things are ever that straightforward or that simple. I'm sure that many of the cameleers were respected. A lot of the records suggest that people felt uneasy with the newness and the the difference that was present in the camels themselves, you know, in their bodies. People, a lot of people who were in Australia at that time had never seen a camel, so it was a pretty strange-looking creature, but also with the practices. So certainly different cultural practices, different languages, different religious practices were quite confronting. And, of course, the cameleers brought with them all the kit that was needed, really specific equipment, like really specific harnesses and bridles and saddles. They were highly skilled people, not only in handling the camels, but also in making stuff, so in making bridles and saddles and so on. And as far as I understand, the the saddles that are still made in Australia for use in tourism ventures and so on that involve camels are still based on those very old designs. So they brought with them a whole range of skills and also, of course, the adornments. There's some great images in the National Library Archive and the National Australian Archive of just beautiful photographs of camels. And you would have seen one of the shots in the paper that we've written. Camels adorned in fabrics and blankets and bells and all sorts of beautifying stuff. Cameliers also brought with them like they planted fruit trees that we hadn't seen before, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So in fact, if you visit a lot of inland towns like Maree, for example, at the kind of start of the Birdsville and Udnadatta tracks in South Australia, there are date palms there that were planted by the cameliers. In a lot of outback towns, there'll be a mosque or there'll be a memory of a mosque being in those places. So there's lots of kind of material evidence, on, and or not just evidence, but material objects and items in the landscape that signal that, that history. And, I th- you know, I think we should be 
we should be proud of that history and we should be celebrating that history. It's it's really important to the history of of Australia, actually. In 2008, there was an estimate that there was about a million camels in Australia and that figure created great alarm and it was due to that figure that the following year, in 2009, the federal government allocated $19 million towards the management of feral camels. And this was kind of the beginning of the National Feral Camel Action Plan which started up in 2010. So as part of that program, the culling program began. Now, when the estimating numbers of animals is really, really challenging, it's very difficult. And also a lot of species populations will fluctuate from year to year, particularly with drought and so on. But I think it's really interesting to point out that in the final report for the Australian Feral Camel Management Project, there was... It was reported that 160,000 camels were removed, so that was shot from helicopter, between, mostly between 2010 and 2013, so over that sort of three to four year period. Now, interestingly, that figure left a, a, a density of feral camels that equated to a population of around 300,000. So if we add 300,000, that's how many camels we think there now are in Australia. 300,000 camels, 160,000 were shot. That's less than half of the estimated population figure. Now, the reason I'm going through all these numbers in quite kind of fine detail is I think it's really interesting. It's really complex. It's hard to estimate populations. But the, the alarmism of saying there's a million camels is part of... I think, is part of what led to that $19 million that the federal government invested. So I think that's a really important sort of point to, to get out there. It added to a, a hysteria and therefore was used as a political... I think so. I think people respond to that. That's, there's a sense of great urgency. There's, this is a big problem and we must act now. In 2010... The government paid a contractor, Ninty One, a whopping $19 million to have camels culled, mostly from a helicopter firing bullets down. We know even the most perfect marksman finds it difficult to get a clean shot. Animals die a stressful, painful and too often suffer a long death. We don't know a lot about invasive species yet. This stigma of a feral that does not belong in our environment informs much of our environmental management and action. Most of the work that's being done on camels and on the environmental and social impacts of camels in Australia says that we're not going to be able to eradicate camels. It's, it's not possible. It's just like rabbits. We can't actually realistically expect that we're going to eradicate them. So it strikes me then that... If the aim of any management plan is not to eradicate them, we need to be thinking about what we're aiming to do. And to me, simply aiming to kill as many as we can 
just seems preposterous. It doesn't seem like a good solution. It doesn't seem like an ethical solution. It's not going to be effective. And most of the scientific community who are working on this work would accept that um, it has limitations. So it's really important that we remain open to different ways of thinking about how we manage whether it's the impacts of camels is it is it the impact in a particular place are there particular sites that we need to protect if there are particular sites that we need to protect what are the best ways of protecting those sites so is there a key waterhole that's being trampled by camels and if there's a key waterhole rather than just trying to reduce the camel population in that area are there other ways of protecting that waterhole and those might include of come across instances where people have been talking about fencing waterholes, maybe that's not the best option in some places. So actually providing alternate water sources away from that waterhole is one idea that has been put forward. But I guess what's really key in this is that the, the Feral Camel Action Plan is a, na- a nationwide program and maybe that's not the right scale to be thinking about management of this species. Maybe we need to be looking at much more nuanced, kind of smaller scale, local management strategies. Is the push behind the National Eradication Program primarily because they compete for grazing areas with cattle farmers? Not so much. There's a range of different environmental impacts. So since introduction in the mid-1800s, In 2008, it was estimated that there were one million camels in Australia. So there's been an increase in the population that has been of concern and there's a range of different impacts. So one of those is destruction of wetlands and waterholes. One of the other issues is around destruction of infrastructure. So camels are very big animals. If they want to get to a water source, then they'll kind of managed to push through just about anything. So a lot of fences, pastoralists' fences, have been damaged. Townships have been damaged by camels. Ooh. Again, a thirsty camel can, can do a lot of damage. A thirsty camel will get through a lot to, to get to water. Get a drink, but yeah. To get a drink, yeah. So there's lots of, you know, accounts of different kinds of impacts. And through a bunch of different studies that have been done, the key issue is really not so much an individual camel, but the issue of camel density. So the work is kind of focused on a range of different environmental impacts and social impacts of the camels. You are listening to 3CR 855 AM, Freedom of Species. We are speaking with Dr Leah Gibbs from the Department of Geography and Sustainable Communities, the Faculty of Social Sciences, University of Wollongong, Australia. We are talking about what sounds like a thoroughly Australian camel. Why does the camel fit so well into our landscape? Camels, I guess, really originally came from North America, but where we, the places that, like a long, long time ago, tens of thousands of years ago, but where we associate camels is really South Asia, the Middle East and North Africa. And these places are mostly 
arid landscapes. I should say this is the dromedary camel. So this is the single humped camel. It's very, very different to the Bactrian camel, which is the one with two humps. Those guys come from Central Asia and they're a completely different story. Um, but the, the dromedary camels, which is the, the one that we have in Australia, there were a few Bactrians brought over, but they didn't do very well because of the heat. They're just adapted to arid landscapes. They can survive for a very long time. I don't have the figures in my head, but they can survive for many, many days without drinking water. I think it's several weeks, actually. So it's quite, I might be wrong on that, but it's quite astounding. They also have, they've got feet that are suited to walking on sand and on stony desert surfaces as well. So they're kind of, their bodies are designed for, for desert landscapes. So the places where camels were used in terms of exploration and and so on, were mostly the arid and semi-arid parts of Australia, and that's mostly where they remain now in terms of that wild camel population or feral camel population. And that's where they're thriving, is that that's right? where they're thriving, okay. exactly. My understanding is that um, mostly the females kind of hang out together in big groups with the young, and males will be much more solitary. The places in the world that we associate camels with, so... North Africa, Middle East, uh, South Asia. Those places, there's camels, but they're fully domesticated. So there are no wild camel populations in those places. So some people have described that as being the species being extinct in the wild. Now, that's actually really interesting, I think. So here in Australia, we have individuals and a population of camels that was domesticated, but it's now several generations away from being domesticated individuals. But we've actually got one of the only populations of what we might call wild camels in the world, and it's actually the largest population of wild camels in the world. Now, as well as the fact that the camels in those other places are all domesticated and, you know, like cattle are in Australia or sheep are in Australia, they're owned by someone. As well as that, those populations are decreasing quite significantly. So in different parts of the world, the populations are decreasing more rapidly than in other places, but those decreasing populations are of great concern in a lot of places. The reason that it's of concern is that Camels play a huge role, a very important social role in many parts of the world in terms of providing a livelihood for people, in terms of social status, in terms of a whole bunch of different things. And part of the reason that camels are, that, that the populations are decreasing is because other kinds of technologies are becoming more available. So some of the jobs that camels used to do are being taken over by other things, just like that was the case in Australia with the motor vehicle. And in some cases, there's disease that's reducing populations. So some people have argued that the camel population that we have in Australia is actually potentially really important because this species is decreasing in lots of parts of the world. And that kind of argument is relevant to not only camels, but to a whole bunch of different species where we're seeing enormous environmental change at the moment and, and, you know, over recent decades and in lots of places, the kind of area in which a species or a group of species thrive or have thrived 
is shifting, is changing. You know, lots of species are under increasing pressure for agricultural land, for urban development, because of atmospheric changes in in terms of pollution and so on. And sometimes those species are actually thriving in other places. So it raises some really interesting questions, I think, about what's our role, humans, what's our role in trying to manage where the species are doing well and is there a place for us to say okay look this species is doing really badly where it comes from but it's doing well over here can we accept that it's doing well here and can we accept it and find a way for it to belong Do we use them as a, a resource? Yeah, in some places we do, but in very in relatively small numbers. So many, many people will have seen romantic images of, of tourists riding on camels along the beach in Broome, you know, on Cable Beach or something like that. And there are camel expeditions in central Australia that you can pay quite large sums of money to go on and so on. Now, these, they, I think these are really interesting, these tourist ventures, they involve very small numbers of camels. There's other kinds of ways in which we use camels. One is meat production. So there is a small industry for producing camel meat. There's also a live export, and live animal export for meat to other countries. That's also quite small. And of course, it's not collecting animals from the really remote parts of Australia because that would be economically prohibitive. There's a small industry in camel milk. Um, I know that there's a few groups in Western Australia producing camel milk, which is used in lots of parts of the world. And, you know, there's arguments to suggest, well, maybe, wow, we've got lots of camels, maybe we should be producing more camel milk. And then the other really interesting one, of course, is the use of camels in weed management, which I think is really fascinating as well. So we've got a few different ways that we use camels, but even together, they're not using all of the camels that we have in the landscape, if you know what I mean. 3CR, radio that's independent, progressive and making a difference. You are listening to Freedom of Species. We are chatting with Dr Leah Gibbs from the Department of Geography and Sustainable Communities, Faculty of Social Sciences, University of Wollongong, about camels. And I asked Leah to elaborate on the relationship between camels and weed control. So my colleague Jenny Atchison is an expert in human interactions with plants of all different sorts and a lot of her research has been on weeds. And so this is an area that she's really lent a lot of her expertise to. She's found with some other colleagues that there's some really strong associations between camels, which are an introduced species, and a bunch of plant species that are considered to be weeds, and even you know weeds of national significance. So other kinds of species, plant species that are deemed to be a national concern. So I guess the key example that I could talk about is several properties in Queensland, but also in other parts of the country as well, where quite sort of innovative farmers have tried a whole bunch of different strategies, a whole bunch of different approaches to trying to manage weeds on their property and in particular really 
challenging weeds like Parkinsonia, which tends to kind of grow in big clumps and it can create quite impenetrable sort of boundaries around water bodies and so on. So some of the people who have now adopted camels have looked at a whole bunch of different ways of trying to manage these weeds and have been really stumped. And through various experimental processes, they've come up with an understanding that camels, because of their very special, very particular way of eating, can actually be put to use in fairly high density in specific areas to control weeds. So in high density, camels will eat something basically until it's dead. So that's one of the environmental effects that can be negative in some contexts. So if you've got camels eating native species that, here I go again with the native invasives, but (laughs) um, species that are desirable for a whole range of reasons, they might be native species, they might be food production species, whatever, then that's a problem because in high density the camels can destroy the plants. But if you want those plants to be destroyed, then hooray, you've got this situation where the camels are actually eating the species that you don't want to be there. And so a bunch of different farmers in Queensland and other parts of the country are using camels and are increasing their herds of camels for exactly that purpose. They can literally, as herbivores, go through a lot of weeds. (laughs) Not just that they go through a lot, it's actually to do with their particular form of grazing and browsing, so the way that they eat. So it's actually Mm. to do with their bodies, with the specific way in which their mouths and their teeth devour things that contributes to their effectiveness as weed managers. You are listening to 3CR 855 AM, Freedom of Species. We are chatting with Dr Leah Gibbs about the thoroughly Australian camel. With Indigenous communities, there's do they have a different approach, uh, some of them, with... with yeah, yeah, it's very important to not generalise when Absolutely. talking about Indigenous communities, of yep. course. So in a lot of cases, Indigenous communities in different parts of Australia have historically said, and many still do say, that people shouldn't be trying to control whether a species exists in, a, in one place or, or not. But, so... One example of that is control of buffalo in northern Australia and there are some anthropological studies of indigenous communities in the north, in the top end, who have basically come to understand that buffalo are part of the landscape. So they're not deluded, they're not, they're not mistaken, they accept buffalo as part of the landscape. So in lots of places, camels have been accepted as part of the landscape in Australia by indigenous communities. Um, On top of that, you've got another really interesting set of histories around the fact that quite a few Indigenous communities in Central Australia have Afghan heritage. So the the Camaleers who settle in particular areas often settled down and had families with Indigenous community members. So there's quite strong family ties as well between Aboriginal people in some parts of Australia and the Afghan Camaleers, which therefore makes a kind of link between Aboriginal people and the camels. So there's a different kind of relationship that exists there as well. So there's a few different ways in which Indigenous people and Indigenous communities would sort of suggest that camels, we shouldn't be interfering with camels, we shouldn't be trying to control those populations. That said, more recently there's been some accounts and some really interesting studies that have been done 
about Indigenous communities who are really suffering because of the density of camels in their country. So particularly in far eastern Western Australia, if you can picture that, and also in the kind of southwestern part of the Northern Territory, in some of those communities where camel density is really high, there's been a lot of damage to waterholes, in some cases to sacred waterholes, and also to townships. And so in those places, some of those communities are kind of beginning to say, actually, this is causing a problem. So once again, you know, there's not a simple sort of binary relationship of good and bad and who thinks these animals belong and who thinks they don't belong. It's really, really complex. If a population management is needed in those situations, do you know of a humane way of doing that or what what you can put in place? I I just think that it's really important to take each case on its own and that can be extremely expensive to do. But from what I have read and from what I can understand... It's not effective to simply try to reduce the national camel population in order to attend to a local problem. So in each case, you know, if the camel density is particularly high in one place and it's a problem because a particular water source is being damaged, then that's what needs to be looked at. And I also don't want to suggest that people aren't aware of that. That's something that many people who work on feral camels would agree with. But talking about a national scale program, I think, is quite problematic in some ways. It is really complex. It's a really complicated story, and I'm I'm very cautious to not make it sound as though people aren't already thinking about these issues, because people really are thinking about them. But we're trying to encourage people to think about some of the issues like that history of ethnicity and immigration and like what happens with dead bodies in a landscape and like, you know, the hope that might be presented by putting camels with weeds, you know. (laughs) We're trying to encourage people to think about some of those more hidden stories. Freedom of Species is a show about animals, for animals, listened to by humans. Tune in Sundays, 1pm. You are tuned in to Freedom of Species and that completes our interview with Dr Leah Gibbs urging us to acknowledge the hidden stories in relation to our camels. Camels are, I guess like us, a part of our living history, whether we like it or not. Time for some news. In Australia, Barnaby Joyce announced his drought support package. The only mention of the animals in the package is about $26 million for programs to manage pest animals and weeds. Unfortunately, a lot of that will be to finance persecution of stabilised dingo populations by 1080 poison baiting wild dogs. We've had a few shows on the fact that this killing doesn't work. It, it makes things worse, mostly. Prize-winning ecologists are urging us to let our dingo populations restabilise as they will manage our kangaroo and fox populations 
to name a few animals that they will keep in check effectively and for free. It has been proven attacks on livestock will reduce if we stop this killing and implement other strategies such as guardian animals as well. In relation to today's topic, the Dingo 4 Biodiversity Project are now testing whether providing protection for dingoes can help regulate camels. And I quote from their website, Like all species, limiting population density can be the key difference between harm and asset. How can a predator the size of a dingo possibly affect a herbivore the size of a camel? Apex predators affect their prey not only by killing them but also by scaring them away from certain areas. Dingoes are a threat to baby camels and so the mothers have to keep them safe from dingoes until they are large enough. And this can actually make all the difference that was written by Arian Wallach. Some very good news from New Zealand New Zealand just took a huge step forward for animal welfare by legally recognising animals as sentient beings. Dr Virginia Williams, chair of the National Animal Ethics Advisory Committee, said, To say that animals are sentient is to state explicitly that they can experience both positive and negative emotions, including pain and distress. The explicitness is what is new and marks another step along the animal welfare journey. The bill also includes banning cosmetic testing on animals, which was recently put into law there last month. It also provides for a penalty scheme to enable moderate offending to be handled more effectively and gives animal welfare inspectors the power to issue compliance notices, among other capacities. The new bill is one of many positive strides that New Zealand has made recently when it comes to animal welfare and environmental issues. Last autumn, they joined the fight against whaling in Japan and in 2012, they granted personhood to Wanganui River. The date for the next Melbourne Pig Save rally is on Saturday, May the 30th at 12 noon. So that's at the front of the GPO building in Burke Street Mall in the city. So why not uh, make a David in the city? It's a great rally. It's been really consistent and it's really educating the, the public on uh, the issue of pig production in Australia. Melbourne Pig Save aims to inform the community about the plight of pigs in our food production system, which includes legal and routine mutilation, which is mostly done without anaesthetic and severe confinement when it comes to the sows. The mother pigs are are kept in spaces so small they can barely take a foot forward or back. Uh, Most of us would be absolutely horrified if we heard dogs were being kept like this and pigs feel and suffer uh, joy and pain as our pet dog does. So please support Melbourne Pig Save on May the 30th. It's Radiothon time guys and um, I'm going to have to ask for some money to keep animal advocacy activated on the airwaves so look if you can donate a couple of dollars it'll be tax deductible and much appreciated so please call the station on 9419 8377 or go to the website uh, to donate 3cr.org.au
www.freedomofspecies.org.au and please specify that it's actually for the Freedom of Species show. That would be great. Next week, Kate Elliott will be back in the FOS seat interviewing Dr Dinesh Waterwell about his soon-to-be-released book Animals and Capitalism, Use Value, Exchange Value and Surplus Value. Uh, Dr. Wadiwell is also the opening night speaker at the ICAS Oceana Conference, which is the Institute of Critical Animal Studies. They're actually having a conference titled Conflict and Struggle, Resistance and Change, being held in Melbourne from 9th to 12th July. So listeners may well be interested in looking that up, the Institute of Critical Animal Studies. Kate will also be talking to Jess Eisen, who is the representative for ICAS. There's also another community service announcement uh, titled Pitch In and Please Help with Hefty Legal Costs. Because we're, we're asking for the money today, but it's all for really great causes. Now, I don't know if any of our listeners remember Romulus, My Father, the film. Now, that celebrated the harsh beauty of the Mulort Plains in central Victoria. There is now a proposal to build a massive chicken factory at the eastern edge of that area. The factory will process 8 million chickens a year in 24 sheds. Each shed is the length of the Melbourne cricket ground. It will spoil the life of all nearby residents, undermine the livelihood of many of them and put flora and fauna at risk. 5,000 truck movements a year will service it. It will stink and probably pollute watercourses and and the tank water of nearby villages and farms. So that's a, a wow. A great concern. Imagine, imagine living in a in you know in an area where this kind of proposal was happening. You'd be devastated. Really, you'd be literally stunk out of town. You know, it's a, the reality of what happens in our world when it comes to this demand of you know cheap meat production. So, look, please support support these people if you can, or just share um, on the Facebook page their campaign, which is on Chuffed. It's the Chuffed campaign, and I'll put that on our Facebook page again or and on the website for today's show. Anyway, I better wrap up. I thank very much uh, Leah Gibbs for spending time with us today and the musicians uh, called The Ballet, and there was some music by Bombino, um, which was peppered throughout the show. If you'd like to contact us, please do on info at freedomofspecies.org, Facebook, Twitter or the website. Uh, For the exit tune, I'm going to play a song by the ballet called A Difficult Situation. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.